Customer's Pet. Hey everybody, welcome back to Ministry Misfits. We are back in studio yep, we because had, we think we're healthy. Yeah, hopefully we stay healthy. We both had some <laughs> back and forth. Yeah, well, I didn't issues. have any of the back and forth. All of the rest of my family had the back and forth. True, you stayed clear. And yes. then I ended up And then you ended up getting week. sick. But we're back now, and we are super excited because joining us today is Dr. Beth Allison Barr. She is back with us to kind of actually start start and finish a conversation we started inadvertently the first time that she was on when we were actually talking about just history and her book. And during that conversation, it came out that the one thing she actually wants to talk about more than anything nobody ever asked her to talk about except for the university and she has to do that because then she gets paid so today she is back and we are going to talk about sermons and sermonology which is that actually a word or did i make that up um i think it's i've people use it i don't know i think we made it up not it's sermonutics not really or something word, like that. you're not the first I, yeah. one to use that well, our vote now is that you change your your class name to Sermonutics. Sermonutics, yeah, we're gonna, coming. Yeah, yeah no. We'll, we'll make that another T-shirt. <laughs> we'll make that a T-shirt. We'll just cre- create work. Typically, we start the episode with Webster's definition, but this time we're we'll, starting we'll with our own. own. But speaking of definitions, let's actually start out because this has been something where you you were lucky enough to miss this conversation because you were traveling. I caught the back end of the conversation and was just super confused why it was a conversation. And then I get the conversation third party through you. Yeah, because you can't figure out how to get your Twitter to work. Yes. So. Oh, that must be nice, actually. I know. <laughs> <laughs> he just gets screenshots that I send him every once in a while. That, um, I would, that would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. We'll teach you how to get it. Yeah. How to ignore my Twitter. The, yeah. the conversation, though, was around proper sermons and sermon techniques and sermon lengths and who could give a sermon and who has given sermons and is it proper to do sermons online is what we're doing here technically a sermon all of that fun stuff so let's actually start out with the easy thing can you actually give us a proper definition for what a sermon actually is So as I think I told y'all last time, um, this is the question of my graduate seminar that I teach at Baylor. Uh, It's a a seminar on medieval sermons, but I teach it around the framework of what is a sermon and how do you use it as a historical source? So we start off on the very first day with this question of what is a sermon? And I let all the students tell me what they think a sermon is. And then we ask that question again at the very end. And our answers are, it is much more complicated by the time we get to the end of the seminar. So I'll start off with the simple sort of like, what is a sermon? And this is actually a definition that medieval um, sermonologists, if you like that word, this is the definition that we use. It is in a book called The Sermon um, by a recently retired professor at Harvard named Beverly Kingsley. Um, And she says that a sermon 
is an oral discourse preached by a preacher with authority who has recognized authority to an audience um, that is instructing or exhorting about faith and or morality based on a sacred text. So is that, so, you know, essentially three parts, preacher and audience, oral delivery, um, instruction and exhortation, and about faith and morality based on a sacred text. So that's a simple definition of what is a sermon. Yeah, that's a good place to start. And I'm not sure if we want to break into briefly all three of those and break those down a little <laughs> bit further as far as what qualifies. Well, we can start with the easy one to start with that we can just get out of the way is the the content part as far as what that definition it's talking about mm. exhortation and exaltation and and building up. And so really the easiest way to do that is to go back you go first Timothy three sec or second Timothy three, second Timothy four. First Timothy three is a different discussion to have with Dr. Barr. Second Timothy three and second Timothy four, we're talking about what scripture is, right? It's useful for teaching, teaching. rebuking, and building up others. Right. Yep. Teaching, rebuking, correction, training up in righteousness. Yep. Those four things are really what what we're talking about it's just those are much more academic words that dr Barr gave us instruction so if you're trying to figure out what that's talking about that's where we're at as far as what is needed within a sermon but the other two pieces are where it's going to start getting a little bit more complicated so let's start with you know the the fun place to start let's start with this idea of it's a of the preacher and a preacher yeah. that has authority. Mm -hmm. Yep. Historically speaking, what are we actually dealing with here? Yeah. So um, I, I try to emphasize to people that our understanding of authority is something that is based upon culture and it changes over time. And so how we define what authority means um, is dependent upon on when we live. Um, but there are some basic parameters for it. And so even from the early medieval world, you know, if we think about one of the um, Augustine actually tells us about how to preach in the fifth century in his book on Christian doctrines. I think it's book four on Christian doctrines. He actually talks about how to preach and he talks about what a preacher is supposed to do. And so we have this idea of preaching very, very early on in the church. Um, and we even have early these early theologians, um, both church fathers and church mothers, looking back to what we find in biblical texts. Like I've been teaching through Acts in my Sunday school class. And so we just, you know, did Paul's Mars Hill sermon. And then, of course, the famous sermon that's given in Acts 2. Um, so thinking about these, these texts were what these early theologians drew upon. Um, and who got to preach in the early medieval world? Um, people who got to preach were those who were recognized with spiritual authority in some sense. Um, either they were connected to the early church um, had been taught through what we call apostolic succession, um, you know, through the lineage of the apostles and had been taught by people who had been taught by, you know, essentially going all the way back to the apostles. And so this is this idea of apostolic succession. It's what eventually leads us to conversations about the papacy and the ecclesiastical mm -hmm. hierarchy in the Catholic Church. Um, but they weren't the only people who got to preach. Uh, people who were also recognized to be... Um, 
to be friends of God. That's actually a word that's used for some of these early saints, um, people who are recognized as having um, as having been close to God in the sanctified authority um, that was usually manifested through um, through their actions. And this is something, too, I want to mark that both Augustine as well as Gregory the Great, who also talks about how to preach um, in the seventh century, late sixth, early seventh century, um, both emphasize that preaching is an oral discourse, but it is also manifested in the actions of a preacher. So it's not mm. only it's not only teaching well, the person with authority also has to live what they teach. I mean, that's actually really critical in the in the medieval text. I think that's something we've forgotten today. It's not just about the teaching. It's about who the person is. And so a person who manifests this um, godly, this godliness um, and is recognized as being a spiritual authority, even if they don't have formal training, can preach in the early medieval world. And so we have women who are preaching in the early medieval world. Um, and, uh, you know, women never preach to the same extent that men do, but they are there and they are recognized and they do go back, especially in the early medieval world. There's been a lot of conversations about Mary Magdalene lately and mm -hmm. the medieval world recognized Mary Magdalene as an authorized preacher and that she preached the word of God and in, in instruction and exhortation and brought people to the faith. That what she just laid out for us is both the importance of the person that's preaching, what they're preaching, but also the character of the person that is preaching. Right. And this goes back to when I slipped up and said 1 Timothy 3 back at the beginning. Now we are into 1 Timothy 3 as far as what Paul says you need to see within the people that are in authority within your churches. Right. And the majority of that all deals with the character of the person when people are not looking. Mm -hmm. And then right. when the outside world is looking, which this is the funny thing. I don't know if you have noticed this at all in, in your discussions, but how often when we start talking about this whole first Timothy three thing, the, the verse that gets thrown out all the time is 1 Timothy 3, 2, as far as yeah. husband of one wife. Right. Do you, do you ever actually hear anybody that's arguing that go into verse 7? For, I... for people that don't know what verse 7 is, it's the idea that they need to be well respected by outsiders. Right. Um, um, which is contrary to a lot of what you hear also people saying you don't want to be well liked. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think this is another, this is one of those cultural definitions here. I mean, if we think about the medieval world, um, we, it's all preachers are not celibate at this point in time. Celibacy uh, for pastoral authority is something that develops. And it's really not until the 11th and the 12th century that we get a hard push in the European, in the Western world. Um, for celibacy of priests. Um, so there were married preachers um, in the early, although they often would have left, they often would have dedicated themselves. Sometimes they were widowers, et cetera, but that's a whole mm -hmm. nother thing. But the emphasis wasn't on the um, husband of one wife. The emphasis was on the character. And we see right. that. And then after the Reformation, when we see more emphasis in the Christian world placed upon marriage, 
we see more emphasis on husband of one wife. Um, and so we see this, you know, our focus on the scripture is not just about the scripture. It's about our culture that influences us to see particular parts of the scripture. So we do see a flip in an emphasis. Um, as for the modern, I mean, I do see there are people who talk about character when they talk about the preacher. But when you think about the rules, in fact, I saw a really funny sort of thing. Somebody was going out and saying, what are the rules to preach? And essentially it was married to, you know, a husband of one wife. Mm -hmm. And somebody else was like, no, actually it's just man. <laughs> you know, that's the only rule. <laughs> and I thought that was really funny, but it was, but those conversations did not talk at all about character. And, and I think we do not see that emphasized as much. We pretend, but we do not emphasize, this, emphasize it in the same way that we emphasize husband of one wife and a man um, in these conversations. And I think it's challenging, too, because we then put ourselves in almost the place of God to ordain that authority to say, all right, where, where's the line at? Where's right. the crossing over point where all right, now your sin is creeping into your lifestyle and mm -hmm. not going from what you're doing at the pulpit or however you're giving your sermon. Yeah. So that can be a challenge. Yeah, and, no, and, and I think we're, go ahead. Oh, well, no, no, no. I'll let you do your thread and then I'll, I'll talk about it. Oh, no, I was, I was about to move us to the next part based off of oh, that. Well, um, I was just, do you want me to mention really fast then that that actually, yeah, the, go for it. How do we judge character was actually a medieval problem too. Um, and so there, I mean, there was this emphasis on it, but then there was also a problem. Like what if you have a priest who has baptized your children and has married mm -hmm. you and has performed the Eucharist for you, but you find out that he's actually, you know, been, he, that he is a sinful person, um, are the sacraments efficacious? And this was actually a big conversation in the medieval church, and it really worried ordinary people who have to trust their priests for the sacraments to be efficacious. And so um, it finally sort of developed the, the idea that, that God is bigger than people. So even if your priest has messed up, that God's power is still efficacious over all of those sacraments. But at the same time, it's still better to have a priest who truly is godly. Um, so there was always that tension too, um, in the medieval world. You know, it, it's funny because as we go through this, you know, what we're going to, to find, I'm sure is that the majority of the problems that plagued themselves in the medieval world are playing out right now, again, online, if not, you know, it should be playing out in the local churches as well, but it's mostly playing out online. Because this is the discussion around even the the people that came came to faith through the Ravi Zacharias ministries. Yeah. Is well, what was it real or not? Well, regardless of who the person is, the faith that you had, if it was in Christ and not in the pastor, right. your faith is still real. That's exactly right. Yeah. But it now does moving us. Person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving us into the next section of this, you've already started walking us through the fact that the cultural cultural aspect is playing a big part. This is something that is not uniquely American, but it's uniquely Western, is this idea of the sermon-centric worship service. We talked a little bit about this with um, Arthur Ag I I'm not going to say his name right again. Agajanian? Yeah, um, I think you got 
when we when we talked the history of art in worship Mm -hmm. and how within eastern churches Yes. It was all part of the experience because that was how the service was driven. We don't have that here because everything is centered around however long the pastor is going to talk. Mm-hmm. Yes. Where did this actually develop? Oh, yeah. This is post-Reformation. So um, this is actually really fun. Um, in, in the medieval world, you know, if we talk about sermon length, um, sermons did sermons length varied based upon the format of the service. So if it was in a service for the mass, sort of what we would consider to be a Sunday morning service or a worship service, though that's not exactly the right word for the medieval church. But if, you know, if we are thinking about where the audience is coming, who are ordinary people who are coming because it is a saint day, because it is Christmas, it is Easter, um, Although I do have to emphasize that medieval people went to church every day. This is something that modern <laughs> folks don't realize. Yes. Medieval people went to church probably more than we do. So um, this is not, so it's not just Christmas and Easter for them. I was just using those as examples. But when people, and often when, when the mass was performed, when the celebration of the Eucharist was performed, the sermon was um, usually homiletic in style. So it was based upon a scripture verse, just expounding on that scripture verse. You can think about... Um, Episcopalian services are often still um, like this today, Anglican, obviously. Um, And so they're much shorter, you know, 10, 15 minutes is often what they were. But if it was a sermon for instruction, like at a university where we would consider it more of a lecture, I mean, these things could go on for a while. Um, Or if it was at St. Paul's Cross, which is outside of St. Paul's in um, London, and sermons were preached outside there since the 15th century, um, and they would attract crowds of thousands of people to come and hear. And they were often longer sermons too, and they were, you know, instructive, um, but they were, it was a different format. They were teaching specific things um, instead of just as part of the, the worship service. So I think it depends in the medieval world about where the sermon was being preached and what the purpose was. And there were often multiple purposes for the type of oral instruction that was going on. Um, after the Reformation, what we see is we see a de-emphasis on the altar in the service. So, I mean, I often think about this, you know, the altar gets moved. Um, The communion table now becomes a portable table that you can move in and out. And it's no longer a fixed place. It's no longer the focal place. Um, And we often see now in, in these early churches, um, 16th, 17th churches, when they start really emphasizing the sermon, we see them starting to build, you know, these pulpits that are really elaborate. Um, Now this did start in the medieval world. Um, But we see it amplified after um, the Reformation. And we see these pulpits like they're often built on the side of a church and they're built with, I don't know if you've ever seen them with these canopies over them. And this is to amplify their voices so that everyone can hear. And so they're put up in these places um, and, and, you know, made so that they can amplify so everybody can hear them. And so everybody can see them too. And they begin to, over, you know, the the rest of the service begins to be literally overshadowed by the preacher. We also see sermons growing in length at this point. 
you know, we start getting some really long-winded sermons um, after the Reformation, especially by the time we get to the 17th century, really, really long-winded guys um, who are doing this type of preaching. We do have some women who are running around preaching during this time too, um, but often not from these pulpits that are fixed in these churches. Um, so we see the emphasis think, move to the pulpit. And I think you, you've highlighted a couple of things here. We'll get to the pulpit here in a minute. Yeah, I like the pulpit. One of the things that you are talking about is the difference in the purpose of the sermons. Mm -hmm. I think this is part of where we start to get into where some of the confusion even recently online is coming in as the far far as there, even within medieval sermonology or sermonutics. There we go. um, You know, we have we almost have different definitions of what actually qualifies as a sermon. Cause you know, you're talking about within the worship service, you know, almost more of a liturgical style, homiletic style. Mm -hmm. Most people, unless you come from a liturgical style church, don't even consider that really a sermon. They can just consider that worship. The teaching to the masses, uh, masses on the street corner that we see now. I I don't know. Did you go out at all for the Hall of Fame game? No, I didn't. I saw three people with the Repent or Parish microphones out on the street corners, and I'm just like, dude, why? Um, that's a whole nother soapbox. Maybe we'll have time for. Did you today. preach a sermon to them? No, because I was on the clock and <laughs> couldn't. But you know, we that is now more considered just evangelism. We would say it's poor evangelism, Mm -hmm. but they consider that's more of what people qualify that as evangelistic. It's not sermons. And the only thing that people think about with sermons is just would agree or wouldn't agree. I would agree that those are not really. I mean, if we think about as part of a definition of a sermon as an authorized preacher um, who's recognized as an authority, it it doesn't give any person the right to stand up and take on that authority. And that there, what you just said, I think is the key to a lot of these debates is that the purpose of the pastor as an authority is someone that is recognized to understand what is going on both in scriptures and in the community and be able to relay that message. To their audience, right. They have a relationship with their audience. Exactly. Yeah. A relational message. Because I think some people just cut to the chase and, and deem themselves as I have authority from God so I can do whatever I want. Right. When <laughs> yeah. that authority, the authority, we know we they do have authority. Yes. But we know what that authority to do. And that authority is to preach the gospel, but not in a sermon setting. Now we're talking evangelism mm-hmm. or if it's done proper, again, it's relational we're talking evangelistic disciple making. So I will interrupt. I'll interject here. Um, And there was a shift in medieval sermonology um, in the 13th century. And medievalists often talk about it as the coming of the friars. Have you all heard of, you know, the Franciscans and the Mm -hmm. Dominicans? And the Franciscans were founded in 1209, the Dominicans in 1216. um, And they were they were preaching orders. Both of them were preaching orders. You know, Franciscans, St. Francis of Assisi and Claire of Assisi. Um, the Dominicans, we often think about as the inquisitors. They often became the inquisitors later on. But they were both preaching orders. And they were actually street preachers. Um, but they were trained. They were taught 
Um, and they were given the authority through their orders and they were kind of sent out to go barefoot preaching on the streets to bring people um, to make, you know, to have another level of teaching the faith at a time when they were worried about heresy. Um, now, what's interesting is that there began to be this competition between these street preachers who are actually much more popular than your ordinary parish preach, pre, you know, priest who is preaching. Um, and so often people would go and listen to the street preachers instead of going to the parish church and listening to the preacher there. And so it, it created this interesting um this interesting sort of, you know, this medieval competition on who could preach the best and who could draw the largest crowds. Um, and we have stories about medieval people like going from town to town to hear these famous preachers who are these traveling preachers. So it's sort of a little bit of this celebrity preaching culture that we see develop even in the medieval world. So good thing we don't have that today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, real quick before we go. Yeah. Before we go to the break, I want to just quickly, because we, when we go to the, after the break, we have a couple more deeper topics we need to get to that we've already started talking on, but I want us to quickly go to the pulpit side of things, because this is an interesting conversation in today's church as well, is you have some churches that claim the pulpit is outdated and it needs to go. Some people look at it as a power symbol, and so it needs to go. Some people look at it as a power symbol, and so it has to stay. Some people look at it as a sign that it's time to learn, and so it has to stay. Originally, you already talked about the pulpit was a, just a technology factor. Yeah, it was the thing exactly. that got the voice out. You know, exactly. I had this discussion with, with somebody a few weeks ago. We did this when we talked digital ministry. So this yeah. is why Jesus gives his sermons from the mountains and from the boats. Right. It amplifies the boats mm -hmm. or ampli amplifies the boats, <laughs> amplifies the, the sound. Yeah. yeah. It's the same thing with the medieval style pulpits. Yep. What had, what happened? <laughs> yeah. Why, why did we suddenly associate the pulpit with God's word? is really, I guess, the way we can word it, is the pulpit is now associated with, this is part of what Greg and I have the conversation all the time as far as why, you know, misfits needed to happen. Yeah. Is that people think of ministry just as pulpit. But that's yeah. not anything that we can find in scripture. No. Where did that actually come from, this idea that the pulpit identified ministry and the blessing of God? So... You know, I think this, and I've I've had this question asked to me a lot, a lot by students. We talk about this a lot. Um, and one of the things that happened after the Reformation with, with Protestantism was this idea of the priesthood of all believers, um, which is a, uh, you know, very much a hallmark of Protestantism. But at the same time, it also creates these questions about authority, like, does this really mean anybody has authority that anybody can preach the word of God? Um, is this really what, you know, you know, are there different levels of priesthood of all believers and how do we distinguish that? And so I think in, you know, in, in the medieval church, um, 
there was an ecclesiastical hierarchy. And so, and who designated who had the right to preach. And so we think about like even St. Francis, St. Francis actually really should have been deemed a heretic with kind of what he was doing. But the church realized that he was, that this type of style of preaching was so popular um, that they needed to incorporate it in. So they developed a system to authorize these street preachers and send them out, these Franciscans and Dominicans. Um, and then, of course, we have all these women who are running around, who are preaching, who are just as, um, you know, in some ways as authoritative voices as these Franciscans and Dominicans. Um, and so we see the church beginning to, not in quite as of an official a way, but we begin to see them recognized. Like Marjorie Kemp gets authorized um, by the church. She goes and stands trial in front of the Archbishop of York and gets letters of essentially authorization saying she's not a heretic and she can keep doing this. Um, so we see the, the church makes these decisions um, and they do it supposedly based upon, you know, what we would consider to be today to be licensing. They don't use that word. It's not that formal. You know, it depends on where you are, but sort of this, you have to go and be quizzed about your faith and what do you know? And then you have this, this right to go out. Um, so what we see after the Reformation is we lose that, we lose that system of how to give authority to people and how to recognize people who don't have it. And we begin to see it instead coalesce around this person of the pastor, the preacher, um, and those kind of become one and the same, um, you know, in the medieval world, not all priests, no, well, I mean, it depended, but, you know, they were not always, they were not the only ones who had that sort of pastoral authority, that preaching authority. Um, but we see them really begin to be combined after the Reformation. And they, we also begin to see the emphasis put on the power, the prestige of the pulpit and the church, the place, the fixed place that you were associated with where you preached. Um and so we, I think it has to do with this change in authority. Like, how do we determine authority? And so we begin to define the right to preach around the person who has the right to that pulpit in that church. And so the pulpit becomes a symbol of authority. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get into this word of authority. Yeah. A little bit, um, because it's, it's a uh, it's a biggie, <laughs> yeah. and so we we will be uh, right back with Dr. Beth Allison Barr after this message from Laird Creative Agency. We'll be right back. Season two of the Ministry Misfits podcast and our awesome theme song are brought to you by Laird Creative Agency. In our social media world, the next connection is always one click or scroll away, and your business has to be ready when they find you. That's why Laird Creative is always looking for ways to step your brand up. Whether you're looking to overhaul your brand one time with a new website, or want to save money by outsourcing your graphic and media content, Laird Creative Agency is here to help. Laird Creative's mission is to take the difficulty out of the creative process. With Laird Creative, you'll find a dedicated team of artists ready to tackle any creative need that your business has, big or small. If you're looking for an easier way to share the vision of your organization through thoughtful branding and creative content, find them at LairdCreativeAgency.com to get started. Mention the Ministry Misfits podcast and get a free consultation call. Laird Creative, step your brand up.
Today's a great day to start your own podcast. Whether you're looking for a new marketing channel, have a message you want to share with the world, or just think it would be fun to have your own talk show, podcasting is an easy, inexpensive, and fun way to expand your online reach. Buzzsprout is hands down the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online listed on all major platforms within minutes of finishing your first recording. We just switched to Buzzsprout for Season 2 and have immediately noticed the difference. With Buzzsprout, you get a great-looking podcast website, audio players that you can drop into your websites, detailed analytics to see how people are listening, tools to promote your episodes, and more. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners, and Buzzsprout and the Misfits want to help you get started. Contact us for a free consultation call, and then visit our affiliate link to get started with Buzzsprout. Using this link not only helps support the Misfits, but it also gets you a $20 Amazon gift card. The teams at Buzzsprout and Ministry Misfits are passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. To find out more, go to www.ministrymisfits.com backslash affiliates. We're back. All right. Welcome back. We are still here with Dr. Beth Allison Barr. And even though that's not what we were talking about at all the past five minutes on our break, we are still talking about (laughs) sermons and sermonology and sermonutics, which is what we're going to hashtag this one. We'll see which one sticks. I think think we found our title for the episode is sermonutics. (laughs) So... We are we we started going through just history lessons at the beginning. We talked about definitions. Mm-hmm. We talked uh, briefly about content, and we're going to get deeper into content here now that we're going to get into more of the the theology side of things. But we also talked about where where the pulpit came from, and we ended with this idea of what authority actually looks like. Yeah. Because this is the big topic at hand right now with all of the abuse reports yeah. coming out of pretty much every denomination within the U.S. and a few that are international as well. So authority, when we're talking about it, has some negative connotations to it because it's looked at as a bad thing normally. Mm-hmm. When we talk authority in terms of a preacher or a pastor, what is it that we are actually talking about? Because historically, we talked about within the medieval time, there was an actual hierarchy and an actual board that you had to go through. Pretty much, in yeah. some cases, you've got that here. I mean, you're at a prestigious university that you know, is training people up for ministry. Yeah. I'm a licensed minister. I had to go through a few, few rounds of different things to get that, Mm -hmm. but it's not the same thing. Correct. Well, I mean, you know, it, it depends. I mean, this has always been the, the, the question is how do we define, um, how do we define this type of spiritual authority? I mean, because on the one hand, we believe that it's vocational, that it's a calling, it's a calling by God. And I still strongly believe that. I believe, you know, it's our different gifting. Some people are gifted and, but it's not just the gifting 
it also is the person, the character of the person. Um, and so, which is why these, um, what I would call checks and balances have always been an important part of authorizing a voice that there are people around who honestly can um, vouch for the character of the person. Um, and this is as critical a part of what it means to have this type of, of Christian authority, um, which, you know, it's never, it's, and, and there's, and people have always messed this part up. I mean, you know, you can talk about the medieval papacy and there's some people who really should never been in that position um, that I, I don't think, um, but simply got to it because they were influential and because they had a lot of money and they came from families that were able to buy their way into it. I mean, this is why the medieval church cracked down on what we call simony. And that's the mm -hmm. purchasing the power of God, um, which, you know, is what Peter, of course, you know, Simon, the magician, um, if we think about right. in the New Testament. And so that's where that word comes from. But it is but it's still always been something that's been difficult to difficult to define. Um, so, you know, it which is why we continue, I think, to have these these arguments and these um, these questions about who gets to have authority in these issues. And in the medieval church, you know, we had the ecclesiastical hierarchy, but it wasn't limited to the ecclesiastical hierarchy, as we saw that there were women's voices were authorized um, outside of the ecclesiastical hierarchy. Um, we also see that when and some of the women's voices were authorized by popular appeal, by people being like, this person is speaking of God, and their voices were so loud that the church recognized it. Um, and so we see that on both sides. And we see that today, too, where we see people go through these official structures. Um, but what one of the problems with the official structures, and this is a problem in the medieval church, is that sometimes we just do our, our best friends, you know, our families that we know really well, um, you know, the son of a preacher of a strong preaching family in the Southern Baptist Church, who really has no business being preach being a preacher, except for he's charismatic. And you know, can win crowds, but doesn't have maybe any of the other what we would consider to be discerning factors. Um, but because he comes from an old family, um, he gets to be a preacher and he gets to have a really large church. Um, and so, you know, it's so we even when we have some sort of structure because of our human nature, we often give it to our, you know, it's the good old boy network. We give it to our friends. We clearly see this. Um, seminaries were introduced to kind of help this process. Um, to give training. And, you know, in the medieval world, as seminaries are sort of a throw, we see the growth of the university, which one of the primary purposes of the university was to train pastors, to train priests, um, to train people ordained, you know, moving towards ordination begin to be other uses, but that was one of the main uses of it. And then after the Reformation, we see the development of seminaries. Um, and it was to to work on this problem. Um, what's happened now in our, you know, we've taken the priesthood of believers so far that um, seminaries are no longer considered necessary to be a preacher. You know, there are some or some denominations built on this um, where they proclaim that, you know, anybody who can read the scripture can be authorized by their church to stand up and preach. Um, we see a lot of churches. I think about churches in Waco where the there's very few people on their staff who actually are trained in seminaries before they are hired into these positions. And, um, you know, even though seminaries are problematic in many ways, um, what we end up with is people with no training, with only the word of somebody else who says they're going to bring them in and disciple them 
Mm-hmm. And they have, and with very few checks and balances on them, and yet they're given authority by the local churches. So and I don't. The I just, word you used I just muddied earlier. the water for you. Yeah, I didn't yeah. actually so, help you. Actually, no. Well, you did because you started us into where a lot of these things start, as far as why authority gets the bad name is, and we right. we need to clarify a couple of terms for people just in case. When you say charismatic, you are talking about they have charisma, not yes, the charismatic. I'm talking church. about they have charisma, charismatic with a low C. Thank you for yes. clarifying that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, charismatic with the low C. Um, as far as charisma, Mm -hmm. when we talk about ordination, because this is a word that we use and it's Christianese, it's not even Christianese because it's not even used in all denominations or traditions. When we talk ordination, we are talking about the fact that they are, uh, they have been prayed over and ordained as a messenger of God. They have been recognized. Yeah, it's it's an anointing mm-hmm. through prayer, and it's an and it normally is a culmination of proof that they have they have studied themselves approved, right? Using using Paul's terms, and yes. So this is where people that have the n- title of reverend in the U.S. are people that are ordained, right? They've been through the ordination process, mm-hmm. which it is, is yeah, it's more... different than licensing. Yes. Licensed ministers have met the state School standard. Well, the state requirements for yes. it. And then they are recognized by a local body as being able to teach through those things. The problem comes in with like what you've talked about right here is that ordination has become more than just the local body authorizing this person to to lead or to preach because now there is a there are some added steps that never were there with the apostles and we don't even necessarily see throughout a lot of early church history until we get to the reformation things like charisma things like following things like vocal structures mm-hmm. All of those sort of things now suddenly play in or who your last name is, how dark your skin is, unfortunately, is a step in this process also in some places. Age is also another thing, too. Age is another part. Part of the reason why I was I I was unofficially ordained. I was prayed over. I was sent out and I was authorized to preach the gospel. But I was not officially ordained within any denomination because I did not meet those secondary standards. And anybody that has listened probably knows that the charisma that I have is not one that is normally what is associated with charisma. (laughs) (laughs) People normally don't associate me as as somebody fuzzy. Yeah, I'm not a warm and fuzzy guy, right? I mean, it's you know Darth Vader, right? I'm I'm not sure how the everything went down at your previous church too, but then it becomes a very much democratic process as far as the voting. And all right, now we've got these two or three people, and we're going to let them try out, and then let's vote to see who is deemed the pastor. And a lot of times it is to fit the image of where the church feels like they want to go oh, or yeah. the, the demographic or population that and they this want goes to be back, reaching versus actually can, just doing the work. Right. And this goes back to what we started talking about at the beginning with the, the actual 
qualifications for an authoritative preacher using the definition of sermon that you gave us at the beginning is that it's supposed to be built on their character and their giftings and their calling their gift. Yeah. And their Mm -hmm. calling. Right. Which that goes along with the giftings, you know, the holy discontent stuff that we talk about. That does not actually play into a popularity contest style of thinking most of the time. Right. But yet that's what we use. Mm -hmm. So for you, Dr. Barr, that is now teaching, you know, the history of sermons and the history of the medieval church and, you know, what happened at the Reformation and what Protestant does right, what Protestant does wrong, all those sort of things. What do you say to your students that may be preparing to enter a ministry field about what an actual preacher of the gospel is supposed to look like in this term of authority? Yeah, well, I mean, I I say it all the time. It is not something you want to do unless you are really called by God, Um, because ministry is hard if you do it right. And ministry is, um, it's, it's not simply, you know, as a very few people actually end up in churches that um, are financially stable, <laughs> and actually are able to support. Um, and I mean, and even in those places, ministry is just really hard, which I think is one of the problems too, um, with it is that people who are really called to it, um, end up in places that are really hard and Mm -hmm. they often end up not being able to be sustained by it. Um, and often, you know, I mean, it's just really, really hard ministry burnout is so high, whereas people who, um, are very, you know, charismatic, very popular, are able to get these really large popular followings, followings are often able to build themselves up in these positions, but then they get other people to like take care of all the actual ministry stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they're doing is, I mean, you know, the the sermon, I, you know, people who I, I see people sometimes they talk about, you know, the sermon and how important the sermon is all week long. And I'm like, y'all, I've been in ministry for almost 26 years. And the sermon is actually one of the, you know, when I think about the things that goes on that go on during the week, um, the sermon is often the thing that gets pushed down because you're working with people because you're having to do all of these things. I mean, it isn't the high point of the week. It is um, part of the teaching that you have to do, um, you know, to instruct and to bring your congregation together and to help build community. It's part of what you're doing too, in this exhortation of your community and inspiring them to go out. But it is just a small part of everything else that is done during the week. Um, So, I mean, it's interesting to me when, so when I talk about authority, I mean, I think, I think part of our problem is that we've always had a hard time defining authority um, because how do we clarify who God has called to do this, which is Mm. why I think it's important that we recognize that it's that it does require somebody who is willing to go through some of this, you know, proving some of this training, as well as somebody who has enough people in their life who can speak to their character, who exemplifies the fruits of the spirit um, in all that, in all that they do, maybe not all the time. And when they do mess up that they admit that they mess up. Um, And so, I mean, these are all fruits of the spirit. So, I mean, I think um, it's when I think we cannot separate the ability to attract a large crowd 
and hold their attention from the ability to manifest the fruits of the spirit and a humble and gracious and servant attitude um, throughout the week. And both of those things are part and, and, some, and for some preachers, the ministry part, the working with people is more important to them than the sermon part. Yes. But we often emphasize the sermon as being the most when it's really, I think we have emphasized the significance of it way too much. It is not because, and it emphasizes the importance on the person instead of on the calling of that person to serve the people of God. Now, do you have any recommendations on handle if somebody, if you're sitting in the congregation and you feel like said person speaking does not have that authority um, and how to handle that besides just immediately going on Twitter? But <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it's hard. I always, you know, I tell people, um, I mean, you can think about this. I mean, I, I, I analyze sermons all the time. I have a, a format that I give to my students, you know, to talk about how to use sermons as a historical source. How do we know if a sermon, you know, what style of sermon is it? Is it more of a homiletic sermon, which is actually similar to an expository sermon? Um, mm -hmm. We just, you know, a little bit ways, or is it a thematic sermon, which is also just as important talking about, you know, a, a topic that needs to be dealt with drawing from scripture to talk about it instead of starting with the scripture, um, which is what more we would say, you know, the homiletic or the expository preaching through the Bible verse by verse, which is actually funny to me because the Bible, the order of the Bible has changed throughout, you know, the different, I mean, it's like, it, it doesn't always, it doesn't really make sense to preach through the Bible verse by verse in the order that we have it in our modern, you know, sort of thing that you might think through that because <laughs> that may not be the best way to actually preach through the Bible. Um, so I think, that when when you know thinking about why is this person doing what they're doing and what are the other factors in their life it's not just about the sermon so one of the first things i'll do is i'll look up and see who who trained that person where who they are connected with what their networks are um that doesn't tell me anything like my husband was trained at southeastern baptist theological seminary um obviously that does not say much about where we are now. Um, but he was trained at a seminary that Paige Patterson was at. So, you know, I always hold those things in the back, but it's like, did they go through seminary? What did they, what did they try to do in seminary? Um, uh, you know, what was their goal? And do they have some sort of a, you know, have they actually do that, you know, like as teacher, we have philosophies of teaching. What's their philosophy of being a of being a pastor? Why are they doing this? What is their calling? What's their testimony? Um, how, you know, and and what are the checks and balances that they have built around themselves to make sure that they are that they stay on track with what is God has called them to do? Um, and so looking to see if those types of things are also built in around around the person. Um, and your pastor, your pastor, if you ask them those questions, any pastor that is going to be worth sitting under is going to be super excited. You just ask them yes. that question and want to geek out with you about their philosophy of ministry and education right. and teaching and why they choose the translation of Bible they do and why they wear what they wear on Sunday morning. They are ready to go with that stuff. It's just nobody ever asks the question. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, and we think about, uh, you know, it's, um, 
I, when I think about analyzing a sermon, I always think about where it's pointing. Is it pointing back to God through that instruction and exhortation? Is it pointing back to the people or is it pointing towards magnifying that church or magnifying mm-hmm. that preacher or magnifying this particular group of people? Um, who is it magnifying? And that can tell you a lot. That I mean, yeah. if you can go through and listen to sermons of preachers, you know, at their church that are mo- a lot of people put them online now, and it can give you a good sense of who they're magnifying. And that to me, that is one of that is a red flag. Um, there was. Yeah. Yeah. Just yesterday, there was a guy on Twitter that was talking to us about the fact that he and his wife are in that position you just talked about as far as. Not knowing how to handle, not knowing what to do because the pastor has been Cold War theology nonstop and has even been getting on this particular congregation member for posting things talking about why Christian nationalism is bad. And he doesn't know what to do because, you know, we've talked about this before. Nobody wants to have to be in a position of having to decide whether or not to leave a church or not. If you are all gun ho about leaving a church, you probably were not necessarily fully committed to that church to begin with because you do not want to separate your, I mean, this is literally the design of what Jesus, the images Jesus gives. He gives us the image of a vine and having to be of everybody connected to a vine image of families Image all of these different images, you don't want to have to separate off because as soon as you do, relationships start to fall and break, and it's awkward and it's hard and it's spiritually draining. Mm-hmm. But it is necessary at times to do this. And part of what, you know, when you started talking about the content of the message more than just do I like the guys preaching or not. Because the content tells us what the goals actually are. You know, who is it pointed to? The Christocentric nature of it. Yeah. And we saw a lot of, I mean, we're still seeing it now, but even a couple of years ago of from the pulpit of if you don't vote a certain way, right. then you're not meant oh to be God. here as a Christian. You can't if be you here don't in the vote con- a certain way, if you get the vaccine, if you don't get the vaccine, yeah. if you're wearing a mask, if you're not wearing a mask. And so then sometimes apologies did come out, but then it, again, it comes from, Oh, is this, do I need to apologize because it was a defamation to my name and people didn't like that? Or is it because I truly had a full repentance and heart turn? And so, so- you know, really, you're getting us into the second half that I want to actually discuss with you though, is when we talk about content of a sermon, which is really the thing that unfortunately people get judged for more than anything else. Because, like you said, there are a lot of pastors that preaching is the last thing on their to do list. You know, I'm sure you're going to be shocked at this. Most of my sermons were not finished until Saturday night. Oh, that, yeah. That early? I know, right? <laughs> um, well, I can't believe it was morning at, at 5 a.m., yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, there were there were a couple that I ended up throwing the notes out and rewriting while everybody else was in Sunday school hour. I wrote I rewrote the sermon because I it something had happened that needed to make it change. Yeah. Sometimes those are the best ones. Right. I think so. Yeah. There, yeah, yeah. 
Um, so, you know, the, the content is what people judge by, even though there's way more involved with pastoral ministry, but there's a major debate just in content as well. And typically the, the terms that are used are expository preaching, which you already kind of laid out what that is. As far as it's that verse by verse, it's all Bible all the time. Supposedly. We know that that's not actually the case, but that's what it's supposed to look like. Right. Liturgical is one where the pastor doesn't even write the sermons. Normally it's, they have it laid out and then they are teaching it from their experiences. It's a personal message shared throughout generations. There's a history to it. You have topical or thematic sermons that are literally, okay, we are going to talk about this today. And so this is what the Bible says about it. Basically what you and I do a lot of the times on here last week, we did a topical study Mm -hmm. on peace. Yeah. You know, that was a topical study. And then you also have what is kind of a apostolic prophetic style of preaching that is much more of just, This is the word of the Lord for you, which we can argue the validity of those later, but that's another style. And then you have the traditional Quaker style, which is kind of a hybrid of all of it. Inner light. Now, the question comes in with what do we actually think about these things? Or is it good to just do one? Do we need to mix all of that stuff? Because the argument from many different denominations is that you have to only preach with one of these styles. And if you do any other style, then you are heretical and you have violated your authority. Yeah. Which at least we're using the word violating authority in some cases, even when we're using it wrong. (laughs) But Dr. Barr, historically speaking, is there actually a style of sermon that is been recognized as being the traditional style that's better than others, that is more appropriate than others, that is more spiritually led than others. What what do we do with all of these different styles? So, you know, I think this goes back to sort of this Western idea that everything has to be hierarchical. There have to be things that are better than other things, other than this idea that um, that th- different circumstances call for different types of sermons. And so, I mean, if you just go look in Acts, you know, think about Peter's sermon on Pentecost versus Paul's sermon on Mars Hill and what they were doing there and, you know, and their different styles. Um, And it's just, you know, God works through people and people are different. And so different people are going to preach different ways. And I think that's perfectly fine. It's like the gospels come through different personalities. Um, and so preaching is that way as well. And it has always been that way. Um, and there are moments for different things. Like, for example, you know, um, in in the medieval church, it was very important. They would teach um, the community of the faith, this long history of what it meant to be a part of the church and what it meant to be, you know, the people who came before. This is these sanctoral sermons that focus on believers in the past um, and what they have done and what that means for us, as well as on the temporal sermons, which are the temporality sermons, which are the calendar of the year, uh, you know, that walk you through the life of Jesus and walk you through the, you know, the growth of the church. Um, and so, you know, that tell the story. So they every year 
you hear the story of Christianity. And every year you hear about strong believers in the faith. And then you also hear moments where the preacher's like, hey, you know, we need to talk about this today. Um, this is really important. And so we need to do this, um, you know, we need to do a thematic sort of scene because we, we need to talk about this um, in our church right now. Um, so we're going, we're going to do a thematic, you know, series on this particular topic. Um, but then we also intersperse it with these, with I, what I would consider to be homiletic, um, as well as, you know, focused on the, on church, on what it means to be, to believe and what do we actually believe about Jesus. So, um, and then different styles, you know, like where, who your audience is. Um, are you preaching to your local audience that you know these people really well and you know the problems that they are having? Are you invited to preach at maybe a university setting or, you know, a conference um, where you're preaching to preachers? And so you're talking to all of them and that's going to be a different type of sermon about what you're doing. So, I mean, it's just, it's this Western mindset that something has to be better than something else. Um, you know, it's like, you know, Jesus and, um, uh, you know, and John um, and James and, you know, the sons of thunder where they are having, you know, they're like, who gets to sit next to you? And mm -hmm. Jesus is like, that doesn't, that's not the point y'all. <laughs> it's not the point. Whose sermon is better what I mean? What is that? Um, you you almost God has I noticed you. you almost said Jesus and John Wayne instead of Jesus, John, and James. <laughs> no, I, I just gotta, you had to I catch just, yourself. John and Peter, and I was like, nope, John and J sorry, I just had a brain. Well, yeah, um, the, the one thing that I've heard people complain about too is not enough altar calls in their sermon as well. As far as like feeling like that's needed, what would you say to that? Or do you feel, um, you know, that is, that is a style. Um, now I will tell you my husband and I, you know, we grew up straight Baptist. It is, you know, my husband, even he went, he went to a new church camp with our children not too long ago. It was a great church camp, everything about it. But he, you know, he said afterwards, he was like, the one thing he said, there wasn't really a profession. He was like, I'm really glad they didn't put pressure on the kids because there's a lot of emotional pressure. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he was like, I wish there had been something like, do you want to know more about Jesus? You want to come talk about Jesus? You know, something like that, you know, and part of that was, is that we have such this evangelistic you know, born into us from the tradition that we've been raised in, that we want to have a moment where if somebody's like, I want to know more about Jesus, can I come talk to you about it? We want to have that. But that's it's funny because, you know, wild. the churches that that still are so much altar call, altar call, altar call, fire and brimstone, you know, salvation message or nothing are also the churches that get mad at us specifically. Yes, you're now included, even though you can't get Twitter to work <laughs> about the fact that we are so community focused and talking about, you know, you know, we don't use the term seeker sensitive. We use the term evangelistic disciple making, mm -hmm. but the idea of the fact that we are supposed to be drawing the community into our, yep. our community. That's the Mars Hill sermon. And yet, we are the the ones that are constantly saying, you know, the Roman style evangelism of you have to be a Christian before you enter here are the same ones that are expecting altar calls every single week. And so well, why are we doing these altar calls if we assume that everybody that is here already believes? Yeah, you know, that's the thing is that there's been a lot of studies and that churches, despite the fact that we claim we are reaching lost people. 
churches mostly draw church people. Um, Even people that haven't been maybe in church for a while. um, We also, because there is such an emotional aspect too much of evangelicalism and much of conservative evangelicalism, that altar call appeals to that emotional thing. I mean, that's why we do it. And it also, we can put out, you know, on our statistics, um, you know, we had, we had a baptismal service and we baptized 25 people and this is, or 125 people. And this makes us look like we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, Um, which, you know, might certainly could be the case, but who who are we actually baptizing and who are we reaching? Um, exactly. Which, you know, if I can do a little aside here about the nature of church, um, you know, the nature of church has changed. Whereas in, you know, in the medieval world, it was your neighborhood church. You didn't choose hmm. your church. You went to the church that was down the street um, and you could negotiate with the leadership. And if you all hated the priest, you could rise up. We call it anti-clericalism and be like, we all hate this guy because he's done all these things and you can try to get a new one. <laughs> um, but you can do, but you were committed to your local church and it wasn't, uh, you know, and this is why it also with the preacher, with the friars coming in and preaching, the people still belong to this neighborhood church, but then they were going out and kind of hearing, getting confession from some of these other priests and it caused this, this tension. But um, even this concept of choosing church that we get a mm-hmm. shop church shop to find out which one fits us best. I have a problem with that. <laughs> I'm always, you know, I'm like, do we choose a church for us or do we choose a church that God wants us to be at? And mm-hmm. that is that are, are we, you know, and I, I think we mostly choose churches because we like them and because they have programs for our kids and, um, and they, they, they teach our kids things. So we don't have to bother about teaching them at home. Um, right. And, you know, they provide the most entertaining camp so that our kids will want to stay connected to them. And we can have, you know, really fun conversations with people in our small groups. Um, instead of thinking about, is my church doing what God has called the church to do, which is reaching the local community and is invested in our, the places where we are planted. And yeah, so the, the, thing that, the thing that keeps coming up, that you keep saying is this idea of relational mm-hmm. Yeah, is the sermons were supposed to be relational to the people that they were talking to this, the preachers, pastors were supposed to be relational with the community around them. So the sermons could be relational, right? The church is supposed to be relational to their communities around them. So mm-hmm. that way they are able to feel like they can come to us. And ask the questions, you know, right from my hot take, I cannot stand altar calls. In fact, I have never given an altar call when I have preached a service. Because that's not, I don't see anywhere that that is the model that we are supposed to do that within scripture. Mm. The closest thing you can get potentially would be Peter at Pentecost, but even he doesn't say, raise your hand now. And, oh, yeah, there's one, there's one, there's one. Close your eyes. It's a, what is keeping you from being saved mm-hmm. message. Not a, you need to now come up and make it official. What made it official was the fact that when they were added into the body, the spirit came on them as well. That's what made it official. Not because they joined the role. And the 
if we are actually having these relational aspects within ministry, we don't have to have an official time for people to come up because those conversations will happen within relationship. Yeah. Should be happening. Yeah. And they should be happening anyway. Yeah. Well, this one, I'm interesting to see the thoughts here because we actually brought this up at our huddle probably over a year ago of, you know, I don't remember. So uh, that's true. This probably will circle us back to authority a little bit. So if we have somebody, let's say it's me, I memorize all of Andrew's sermon from five years ago and I go up on Sunday and preach and or rehearse that same uh-huh. sermon word for word. Yeah. Does that by missing that third element of the sermon, as far as the authority is concerned, because I'm following the word, I'm preaching right. to people. However, I wasn't given that authority to. Well, and this goes beyond just what we talked about in huddle, because since that huddle, I do remember that now, actually, (laughs) since that huddle, the whole controversy within the SBC about plagiarism of sermons has come up as well. So from a historian point of view, what what actually when we talk about sermons and plagiarizing where does any of that actually fall? This will be how we can close out, actually, because I, I was going to ask you this but off air, not on air. But since you brought it up, we'll just get this recorded. No, that's great. No, actually, I had a lot of thoughts about that when all the plagiarism. And I think the problem is, is because the focus of the sermon has changed. So in the medieval world, um, really, you know, as I said, there was some with the Franciscans and the Dominicans and the preaching of the friars. We did start getting these personality preachers, um, but they were not quite as common Um, And so the focus was on teaching, teaching what people needed to know to be followers of Jesus. What do you need to know to be followers of Jesus within the medieval Christian faith? Um, And so they had these books, you know, one of the sermon study, one of the sermons that I study the most is a um, series of sermons that were like, hey, preachers take this and use it however you want. And preachers took it and they copied it out for their own use and they changed parts of it. And, but they're all the same sermon collections. They didn't tell who the sermons came from because they were created for everybody to use them because the point of the sermon wasn't the preacher. The point of the sermon was the, was teaching what the church needed to teach. Um, when we see this shift where the shift becomes more focused on who the preacher is, as I said, we do see this some in the medieval world, but it gets amplified after the Reformation in the early modern world as we begin to focus more and more on personalities. Um, then what becomes important, they start publishing their own sermons under their own names um, and sending these things out. Then we see this, you know, more of a concern for who preached a sermon and whose sermon was best. Um, and then we see it doesn't stop people from preaching other sermons, but we do see people becoming more aware. And I think the modern controversy today is when somebody preaches somebody else's sermon without recognizing that it's somebody else's sermon or not recognizing it enough that it's somebody else's sermon, then what they're doing is that they are claiming that they actually are the authors of this um, and amplifying themselves. So I think that's why plagiarism, you know, in the medieval church, plagiarism, that everybody plagiarized. Uh, You know, there's even a saying in teaching that 
teaching, you know, we steal other people's ideas about teaching right. like, oh, that's a really right. good syllabus. Let me use your syllabus. Um, but but the because the focus is on the content, it's not on us. And I think that's what's happened. And so now plagiarism is an issue because it is magnifying the person and they are claiming authority and a prestige based upon words that aren't theirs. Um, So I think that's where the problem is. So it is a problem today. And, uh, you know, so I think it like my husband a couple of weeks ago used something from Rick Warren. He used the idea, you know, thinking about what's your place in the church, his concept of shape. Um, But he said in the sermon, hey, this comes from Rick Warren. He did this. This isn't my idea, Um, but I think it's really good. So I'm going to use it. That's great. You know, doing it that way. I think the problem is, is when you claim other people's ideas as your own to amplify yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and really, we get into, again, the. What you talked about as far as where is it pointing to? Right. Because none of this is our idea. (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, especially scripture. Right. I mean, and even, I mean, even within scripture, I don't, I don't have the exact stat in front of me, but there's a good bit of the new Testament that is literally just quoting the old Testament. Yes. And all throughout the old Testament, they were quoting each other. Yes. So, I mean, that, you know, nothing new under the sun, which, you know, that that's a biblical idea and mm-hmm. that's literally what we're seeing. And if the idea of the pastor or preacher preaching the message is it's an authoritative word from God for this community that's gathered, it makes sense that, that the same message is going to be shared in communities that have the same sort of problems right. and demographics. Yeah, that's exactly right. You see this a lot with Sunday school too, right? Because a lot of the people there, are everybody's vol- using the same. Yeah, everyone's that. Hey, they use this curriculum, and again, yes, it's the exactly vacation right. Bible school. Everybody yeah. uses the same curriculum every single year. Like it's there, you know. Yeah, it's it's yeah. nothing. None of this really is original. And if it is an original idea, we got to be careful with that. As it is, original ideas are not supposed to be coming from the pulpit. The pulpit is not the place for that. That's pastors start podcasts so that they can do original ideas <laughs> not that any of what we're doing is original <laughs> it's just we're the only ones willing to talk about it yeah so dr Barr, speaking of controversy and talking about things <laughs> you are currently in the process of planning another book out yeah um do you have so- any information you want to share about that that you're allowed to Sure. Yeah. My next book actually deals with a lot of things we talked in this. It's called Becoming the Pastor's Wife. And I talk about female ordination. I'm, I talked about it a little bit in the making of biblical womanhood. Um, but this book is, that's pretty much what it's about. It's about how we, um, it's about female ordination, the history of female ordination and what happened when we saw the rise of the pastor's wife, which was a new office, a very unusual office, because instead of it being tied to gifting, it's tied to marriage to another person, um, which is a really fascinating idea and concept. So it's going to talk about female ordination and it's connected, how it's connected to the rise of the pastor's wife. Um, so I'm really looking for it's a lot of fun, and we'll definitely um, have, have you back for that yeah. and be able to do an entire another hour and a half a whole just talking on pastor. Yeah, a whole documentary on pastors' wives. Yes. So, um, your other books are still out and available. 
um, you just finished your one year anniversary for making a biblical womanhood, right? Yep. Yep. In April yep. one year. So it's, it's crazy, but and you um, can still get the links to that from the website okay. and the resources under books. Oh, um, you can also find her first book that nobody believes is her first book that actually deals with what we were talking about today. Yep dealing with sermons in the medieval exactly period. What it's about. And it's coming out in paperback um, oh, nice. in yeah. September. It's coming out in paperback. So I do want to say that my, I filmed this summer, I filmed a teaching series on the making of biblical womanhood that we're going oh, to offer nice. to free for churches. Um, so on, you know, I'm using it like in small group or even Sunday school or anything like that. So I designed it for, for churches, for people who want to use it in that way. And it'll be free. Awesome. And we'll we'll get the link for that and put that in the resources section as well. Yeah. And it'll also be in her guest bio. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, the links to her older books, sorry, older books, um, are also available. They are. Um, they're in the resource <laughs> section as well. So um, in the meantime, Dr. Barr, we are definitely going to have you back to talk pastors wives. And I'll see if my wife wants to join us for that, or maybe we can get Rachel, Rachel Rachel to join us for that one. The first lady. Yes. Um, (laughs) Bless up. Shout out to the bless up podcast there and the absurd conference, which hopefully is coming up soon. They just had a baby. So congratulations, hunk of family and good luck. Um, So yes. Um, but yeah, we will definitely try to get you back for that as well. And I'm sure there are a few other conversations that need to be had that we can have, um, including the one we had off air. <laughs> Just a little yes, bit indeed. ago. Indeed. Um, anyway, in the meantime, though, Brandon, what do we got coming up? Anything? Yeah, in the works, details to be determined, especially since it's Hall of Fame weekend here in Canada. Oh, yes. We are working on a, another fantasy football league. Which hopefully will be much more organized than when we did it last time. <laughs> yeah, yes. And you'll shout out to Rob Elder. You should be able to pick your players this time. Well, but, yeah, that that is still to be determined. Maybe we'll no, do two no, different that is, leagues. That is happening. Anyways, the goal of it will probably be some sort of fundraiser for Tikva. Yes, at least half of the money. Yes, last year, we'll last year we did own. we did it for free, and then our our prizes were some Amazon gift cards. This year, though, we are going to do a cover charge, but that cover charge, one, is going to go towards Tikva and the work that they're doing here in Canton. And then the other half is going to cover the shipping costs for the merch pack that the grand prize winner is going to win. So um, stay tuned for that. Maybe even by the end of this week, we will have figured out what we're actually doing. And by the time you're listening or after you listen to this, go to the Facebook page, Facebook group, you may be able to find the information already. Yep. If not stay tuned, but in the meantime, the merch store is up. Yep. And people are what we found out are wanting yes. ministry <laughs> outfitters. Is that yeah, what they want? So I don't know if you you saw this this conversation on, on Twitter because I, I can't remember if it was you or if it was shout out to Reverend Kim that um well, I was in the discussion with. But um somebody thought that I my title was Ministry Outfits. <laughs> and so they were very disappointed when they found out that we were not ministry outfits, but we do have some ministry outfits. We it's can just... come up with a cloak if we need to. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and have it say, sir, uh, sermonutics on it. Yes. Um, 
in the meantime, also, if you want to support Dr. Barr is like, yeah, I'm never coming back on here. In the meantime, <laughs> if you want to support, you can go to patreon.com backslash ministry misfits. Dr. Barr, we do thank you for coming back on. Yeah. Make sure to check out the Bible study version of the the making a biblical womanhood that she has just put out. We'll have the links for that everywhere on the website. We will see you all this week. The Ministry Misfits podcast is a production of Ministry Misfit Media in association with Overwhelming Victory. Dr. Greg Linville and Andrew Fouts are our executive producers, and Brandon Simmons is associate producer. The Ministry Misfits theme song is written and produced by J.D. Laird and Laird Creative Agency. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at ministrymisfitmedia at gmail.com or by following at Ministry Misfit on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also visit our website at www.ministrymisfits.com or through bio.link backslash ministrymisfits. If you would like to support Ministry Misfits, you can become a patron by going to patreon.com backslash ministrymisfits. 